Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. This week, I am joined by Bruce Feldman of Fox Sports and The Athletic. Bruce has been bouncing around the country a little, visiting campus for spring football. We talk a little about what he has seen. We talk coaches facing the tallest task at their new jobs. What new coaches could be fast risers and maybe the next Tom Herman or Scott Frost? And are there new starting quarterbacks this season who could make an impact like Kyler or Tua or Dwayne Haskins did last year? And we'll talk a little bit about Tiger Woods, since everybody's talking about Tiger Woods these days. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can now find us on Podcast One. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. You can find us just about anywhere you download your podcast. Please subscribe, and if so inclined, give us a good review. And as usual, you can go to collegefootball.ap.org, where you can read all of AP's college football coverage. And away we go. My guest this week on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast is the great Bruce Feldman. First of all, a little uh, inside baseball because I love bringing my listeners into the production of the show. I had scheduled somebody else to be on the show. Oh. Not that I don't oh, love- you, didn't, you didn't tell me this. You didn't tell me I was that's your, not, your safe school. That's, that's not true. I did tell you that. because because And here's the reason why I had to tell him that. Because yesterday, I'm, we're recording this on a Tuesday, Monday at like 5 o'clock, the person who I thought was going to be on couldn't be on. And let me tell you, it wasn't this person, that person's fault either, because that person had told me, I'm only about 50-50. And I was like, eh, it's good enough. I'll be able to get that person. I'm wow. sure that person will come I am, through. I am your backup to John Walters. And that, is, not, that, is a, that is a punch in the kidneys. It was not John Walters. It was somebody else. And that, that somebody else will be on the show soon. So Bruce is one of the few people who you can at like 5 o'clock in the afternoon on a Monday like quickly text and say, hey, can you be on my podcast? Not only can you be on my podcast, but would you mind getting up at 7 o'clock in the morning to be on my podcast Pacific time? And also, but again, knowing that Bruce really doesn't sleep, I figured there was a probably a pretty good chance he would be able to do that. So, Bruce, thanks a lot for, like, bailing me out. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Ralph. All right. So the beginning of this show is going to be the one and only golf segment in the history of the uh, AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Like, Tiger Woods, man. Like, that that was so much fun on Sunday. I'm not a golfer. I have never played a round of golf. The most I've ever done is hit a couple off of a tee at a driving range poorly. My only connection to golf is essentially this guy. Now, you played some golf in high school and a little bit in junior college. Were you a Tiger guy growing up? Because you're about my age. Were you a Tiger guy in your 20s? Like, you were already a golf fan, but how much did Tiger sort of mean to you as far as a connection to golf? Oh, I have a different connection to Tiger. So when I was in college, I worked uh, at the Miami Herald, and... Tiger Woods, I think it was the second PGA event he played. Now, he played it as a high school student in Southern California. He was playing the Honda Classic. 
And I don't know exactly what the, why he was playing that event, but he was. And so I was assigned to follow him around. And so I followed him around that day and I remember interviewed him after the event. And his father Earl was walking about usually like a half a hole behind and he was listening in his you know big headphones then to like to uh, to jazz music the whole time. And I remember talking to him. And it was kind of fascinating to see him at that point because back then he had a bunch of coaches. It was almost like, you know, to make it football related, like some quarterback coaches have like mental coaches and they have this coach, you know, like on the side. And he had all that. Um, and so it was kind of fascinating to see his rise from that perspective uh, as an aside. So I was working for the Miami Herald, but something had happened where I think there was bad, there was a there was a. Uh, major weather weather issues where one round was like delayed or canceled or or postponed, I should say. And my story on tiger from Friday or Thursday and it ran in Friday's paper, uh, was one of the better things I'd ever written there and turned out. And so, uh, they were short a newspaper. Uh, they were short a writer for the event. And I remember, uh, the sun Sentinel writer tried to trade me, tried to trade for me, and he offered like a couple of cases of beer or something to the other writer. Cause I was just like, you know, whatever, 19 or 20 years old at the time. And so that was my, and I'm kind of mangling the story, but I remember as a writer named Larry Dorman. I don't know if you remember that name a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. He was like the nationals, right? Golf writer after a while. It was okay. pretty established on the beat and then worked in South Florida again. And so, yeah, I was almost traded for like beer uh, <laughs> as a writer, as it related to a Tiger Woods story. So, um, but for me, the connection, you know, was that, but watching it on, on Sunday, and I'm not as much of a golf fan as I used to be, but I still watch a lot of it. And the part that got me, and look, we're both, you know, relatively young parents, not young at our age, but there are kids are young, mm-hmm. was tiger's whole image for so long was like this kind of almost machine like you know wears red on on sundays just kind of intense focus you rarely ever saw him smile when he would when he would do well and he did well almost all the time and then he had this real you know demise and so when he comes off the green on 18 and makes the putt you see him just you know everything come out of him and then at one point you see him take the hat off and you're like, oh, yeah, he's aged a lot because the hairline's gone. And, you know, when the hat's on and it's pulled closer, he doesn't look that much different than he did, you know, 15 years ago. And then the hat's off, you know, it's kind of like looking into the mirror after you've had four beers at night. And you're like at the bar and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm a little older than the guy who went out at night, you know, like at seven or seven thirty or whatever. And then you see him grab his his son and jump in his arms. And it was just a very human moment that I think was different for, I think it probably resonated with people for different reasons. And that's why it really resonated with me so much was just, here's him with his kid. And it was very relatable, you know, for, for me, I thought at least as much as I can, and I'm never going to win the masters or even I'm never going to play Augusta probably, but just to see that was, I thought was pretty powerful. Yeah. What was relatable to me, obviously the father son moment, definitely the hat thing, because I am one of those people who like, if I wear a baseball cap, it probably takes, you know, 10 years off my age. But as soon as that comes off, I am very much revealed as a person pushing 50. And, um, 
and, and the nostalgia of it. Like, you know, I, I get, like I have no connection to golf. My father did not play golf. I had absolutely no interest in golf until Tiger Woods arrived. And the, the first memory I have of a Masters is 97, 97, right? When he just blew the field away. And I remember watching it with some buddies who were a little more golf fans in their apartment, um, you know, in the city, and we were just sort of kicking around having beers, doing what 20-some-odd-year-olds do, and watching this, you know, quite frankly, this African-American guy in this stodgy old sport that I kind of always thought of as kind of stupid, quite frankly, just blast everybody away, and he was an athlete, he was an athlete among golfers who I didn't really consider athletes. So that was my connection to, to Tiger and to golf is sort of him sort of shaking up the system a little bit. And so it was a nostalgia moment to a certain degree. I will always have that with Tiger. I am a golf fan only when he's good, quite frankly. I'm a Tiger Woods fan. I'm not a golf fan. I come in and out of the golf a little bit more now that I'm older because I think that's what dads end up doing. But nonetheless, like my connection to golf is all about him. So having him have that moment was a very nostalgic moment for almost 50-year-old me to sit on the couch and totally enjoy it and sort of feel a little young again. So that... I just felt like we wanted, I wanted to open up the show, like doing a little Tiger Woods talk and sort of, because I know it's the big sports story of the week. And it was, it was accessible. I mean, like you, I mean, like it is for you, it, it helped make you, it brought more people into the sport. And that's a cool thing. I also thought, I remember read an Alan Shipnuck story where he talked about watching it in the, in the locker room with some of the players and the, the respect they have for him for what he's brought to their sport and how he's helped it grow and brought so many people like yourself to it, I thought was really cool to read because I always wondered how much resentment would be there and jealousy. And, you know, because you would always hear a little you'd hear like one story about the jealousy part, but you wouldn't hear all of this. So, you know, even to see the other players, some of the other top players waiting for him after he came off the 18th was was very cool. All right. You know what? I didn't expect to do this, but let me let me just ha- hammer on this subject for a little bit. I was trying to explain to my wife what Tiger is relative to other athletes and that he, there is something about him that has drawn so many different people. I'm listen, I'm sure there's still people who don't like Tiger because Tiger was not necessarily universally adored yeah, yeah. when he was at his peak. There were some people who rooted against him because he was the machine. To a certain degree, he was Alabama, right? So mm-hmm. there, there were certain people who rooted against him because he wasn't very lovable, but he won all the time, and people just wanted to see him lose because he was so damn good. And then you had people who were just drawn in by his greatness. And then, you know, obviously his downfall, his person. There's something about him that has just drawn in everybody. And I was trying to describe to my wife, I'm like, listen, like you watch, you know, the CBS morning show every morning, right? The, the new show with Nora O'Donnell and, mm-hmm. and Gail King. Like that was the lead story on that on Monday morning. They led with Tiger Woods and nobody else wins that tournament. And that's the lead of the news. There's something about him. And I don't think maybe only Muhammad Ali Michael Jordan, I don't know if there's anybody else in athletics who really is this compelling figure that sort of just draws in everybody. And I I, like, what is that exactly? It's a combination of greatness, mystery, personality. 
well, story I think some path. Of some of it too is marketing. I mean, I think you had, he was a big, big brand. I mean, to me, more Jordan than Muhammad Ali. But I think what helps is we're talking about, it has to be almost a sport like golf where you can have a 20 year run. You know, I mean, you, you know, you look at some of the great NBA players who just retired, whether it was Dirk or Dwayne Wade. I mean, it's, that's a long career by an NBA stretch. I mean, now the Tigers quote unquote back. I mean, people expect him to have another five strong years where he's playing, you know, late into his 40s. I mean, you obviously can play into your 50s and beyond, but where you can be close to the top of your game when you're in your late 40s. And because he started when he was a teenager and got on the radar, I mean, that's a 30-year run. I mean, short of being a coach, you just don't see that anyplace else, you know. So I don't know. I mean – and these these names are before me. And even quite honestly, I think, you know, we're about the same age. Muhammad Ali, by and large, was like, I remember him when I was, you know, growing up. But like, you know, the 60s were before, obviously before us. And the 70s, for the most part, you know, when you're a little kid, you don't really grasp a lot of stuff. Like Jesse Owens was a larger than sports figure. Joe Lewis, to me, those are the two that I can think of. Well, because, Jackie Robinson, right? Yeah, Jackie Robinson, who just, you know, just his birthday. I mean, because those those figures transcend sports, like I think those are those are pretty those are rare. I mean, I don't know of a, you know, you know Jackie Robinson played football, but of, of football players who who you know you don't as great as like a Dick Dick Butkus was or a Red Grange or those guys. Um, it doesn't seem to go in the same you know, because football is such an American sport, too, mm-hmm. whereas, um, you know, is like I go back to like, you know, Joe Lewis and Jesse Owens. I mean, they were on the world stage with the Olympics. So um, I, I don't know. T- Tiger golf is obviously not is not just as more than an American sport. So it started someplace else. And and I think there's that. And I think there's the long run. And I think there is. I don't know. I, I'd like to think we still believe in second and third chances here i know that there's you know we've become a more jaded and more bitter society i think because of social media and tigers probably you know i'm sure there's still a lot of people who are like yeah f him you know when they yeah. saw that just because because of that but by and large i think a lot of people still want yeah. still want you know seeing him embrace his kids i think like i said i think it made him more human and made it just a sweeter story than i think a lot of people saw coming yeah. at least i didn't see it coming like that and and even the f him people care that's the other thing too like everybody cares to a certain degree everybody has some kind of opinion on tiger and that is a uh, you know that's that's it's a rare rare thing in not just athletes but personalities of all kind and he has that and he is uh, he's one of the most famous human beings in the world. And it was a really awesome story. And again, for me, it was just all about like nostalgia. So let's talk about some college football. So now you were out and about a little bit this spring, hit LSU, hit Louisville. I was interested on Louisville because it got me thinking about this, about a broader topic. Uh, Scott Satterfield goes in there and tries to clean up a mess with Bobby Petrino. And maybe he is the answer to this, but I'm wondering if there are other coaches who fall under this category. And that of the new coaches, which ones have the most difficult jobs now? Which ones really are looking at 
a big rebuild and stepping into the biggest messes. And I guess Satterfield probably has to top that list. What did you sort of find when you went there? And your story on him like published a little while ago, but what was sort of the interesting things that you found that needed to be rebuilt at Louisville? Uh, a couple of things. First of all, it was you went from one extreme to the other where Bobby Petrino no no scoop here is kind of a miserable human being at the core um you know people remember him for the 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 motorcycle <laughs> ill-fated motorcycle ride and the neck brace pictures but just the players there never went to his office they didn't even know where his office was uh you talk to people there just who've been around the program just nobody it was just a very miserable place to be around by and large now they had some really good players not to mean you know x and o's wise he he could be a really good coach but at the end people didn't even want to work for him he had a bunch of guys who were either related to him or were son-in-laws you know just on his staff and satterfield comes in here and like his whole mission statement is about being positive and having good energy and that's so different to the point when you know, talking to people who are inside the program and players there, you know, it was maybe the after a couple of weeks of practice, they were like, wait, we're not going to get yelled at now. You know, they just it was almost like a little bit like having a rescue dog where they're like, wait a minute, we can we're we're, tre- we're treated decently here. And, and it's not to say that 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 other staff was physically abusive. It was just in terms of the way they treated them uh, was a real jolt and now what's different i think is you know it's a uh a team that has virtually i think it was like six scholarship offensive linemen now they have one left tackle who's a big time nfl prospect but beyond that he did not inherit much he has a few he has a bunch of receivers but it's limited i could see this team which by the way opens with notre dame they're going to struggle to win four games i mean i don't if I think people may have tuned Louisville out after, you know, the first month of the season after they lost to Florida State. I don't think they realized not only were they losing games, they were getting blown off the field by like thirty points a game on average. So he's got a major rebuild. I would say the other two that come to mind for different reasons, uh Les Miles is I think he's gonna David Beatty won three games last year. I think Les Miles is gonna struggle to win three games. I, he's not working with anything close to what he's used to from his LSU days. And I mean, it's the complete opposite. Uh, you look at their non-conference. I mean, I think they're going to beat, you know, Indiana state and coastal Carolina, but then they got to go to BC who's not great, but they're not terrible and it's on the road. So I think they'll probably struggle to me. Their best bet to get the three wins is their opener in the Big 12. They have West Virginia visiting. And I think West Virginia, the other name I was going to say is Neil Brown. I I think just the timing, Dana Holgerson got out at a good time because he lost some really, really good players. And they don't have a much returning. And short of Kansas, nobody else in that division is really, really bad. I mean, you know, Iowa State with Matt Campbell's now a very good team. I think what Matt Rule has built uh, Baylor back up. They took a big stride, big strides last year. So when you look around, I mean, I think I think West Virginia could be a team that's going to struggle to get bowl eligible. Which, considering where they've been before, that's saying a lot. Yeah, the Neil Brown one I think is a is a sharp one for you because I think Neil Brown has a chance to be a really good coach. Everything I've heard about him. 
and how he interviewed and he impressed people from jobs he didn't get, which is, you know, sort of a, a, a little behind the scenes thing. Just because you interview well doesn't mean you're going to get that job. Uh, a lot of things go into getting jobs. And so he blew away some folks at places where he didn't get the job. So I think he's got a chance to be very good long term. But you're right. I mean, there was a reason why Dana was sort of looking to find someplace else, right? Because he sort of saw the writing on the wall. I'm deep into my contract. I'm going to, I might be looking for a rebuild season. And if that rebuild season doesn't go very well, now all of a sudden it's 2020 and I'm on the hot seat. Like I go from having my best team to, to having to like, you know, you know, have a winning season just to keep my job. I was looking through the list. You know, the one that comes to mind is Mike Loxley at Maryland. But DJ Durkin, you know, listen, for all of DJ Durkin's flaws and the way that thing crashed at Maryland, he had built a fairly decent talent base. The guys he recruited, he recruited fairly well, and there seems mm-hmm. to be some material to work with there. I don't know how deep they are. And then you you, you have to answer the question is, well, Loxley comes in there and again, anytime a new coach comes in, it's not your guys. So does he need a couple of cycles of weeding out guys who aren't on board with his thing to get more of his guys in there? Plus, of course, there was the fracture in the program anyway, because Durkin's departure was, you know, so divisive in many ways. Listen, I'm sure as much as there were a lot of kids on that team who are, I'm sure happy to see DJ go, there were certainly more than a few who weren't. There were parents who very much wanted DJ Jerkin to stay and were supportive of him. So I do wonder what Loxley's situation will be like at Maryland at a place where you have relatively high expectations. I think they're tired of being at the bottom or toward the bottom of the Big Ten, but nonetheless also a really difficult schedule. Yeah, I I actually did their opener last year. Our crew did at Fox Sports when they beat Texas. And I can say this, they have, what you're saying about recruiting, they have a pretty good skill talent on offense right now. They have a bunch of really good backs, some good young receivers. I mean, they, it wasn't literally fluky that they beat the Texas team that obviously got a lot better by the time of the year when they were a top 10 team, but they're, they have some talent he inherited. Um, I think what's key and, and Scott Van Pelt, who knows Maryland better than just about anybody in the media because of his connection to the place. We had a conversation about, about this, uh, after they hired, right after they hired Loxley and the word he used was healing. And I think that, that, uh, Loxley, you know, he has the connection to Jordan McNair's family. Jordan McNair mm-hmm. was the offensive lineman who, who died last summer tr- in the tragic, uh, situation there. And they are those families are really close. And I think Loxley's timing is ideal there in terms of because he knows so many people there and is so connected around around the state, around that DMV area. I think he has a chance there. I mean, he he inherited. Look, to me, I think he inherits better players than what Neil Brown inherits Mm -hmm. and way better than what than what Les Miles is going to inherit. But he's in arguably the toughest division in the country. I mean, I think there's four top 20 teams in there with Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan, Michigan State. So that's an uphill climb. But another positive, I think, from the Loxley side is that area around there is producing a lot of players now. I feel mm-hmm. like it's 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 always produced some good players. It's everything I've heard from the guys I've talked to in college football, other coaches 
is that the, that area is seems to be uh, really, really taking a step forward in the talent that's coming out there. And Loxley, the way he's he's been able to recruit, I think he should be able to tap into that. But, you know, like you said, the expectations are still really high. This is a place that fired Ralph Regan after he won a ton of games his last year. Yeah, it's weird expectations, and it's an odd program because it's still finding its way in the Big Ten. It's never been a football power, but it aspires to be better. It's had poor leadership over the last few years as far as the athletic department in general. So that could be working against Loxley and the fact that the people who hired him may not have long-term viability. Though if he does well, maybe they will have long-term viability. It's just an interesting mix there that Loxley walks into. And while you're right, it's not a total rebuild as far far as talent is concerned, it's an it's an interesting spot coming out of a terrible situation. And you're right, the word healing, it's not even so much as what you do on the field. It's how do you get everybody sort of rallied around you and, and pulling in the same direction. And that's really why Mike Loxley got that job, because he was viewed as a candidate who could step in there and fix some things that needed to be fixed that had nothing to do with football. We're going to take a little a little break here. We're going to continue on some of these lines of looking at some new coaches and where they might be heading and what kind of jobs they might be doing. I am talking with Bruce Feldman. He is from Fox and The Athletic. I don't even think I said that earlier in the show, but but you all know Bruce. Bruce is from Fox and The Athletic, and we will be back on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast right after this. And we're back on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm talking to the great Bruce Feldman from Fox Sports and The Athletic. And we are talking, you know, a little spring football tour, what Bruce has seen. And But we wanted to get into a little bit of some of the new coaches. We talked about who had the toughest job or the toughest jobs among the new guys. Les Miles. I think Mike Loxley's got a tough task. We all know uh, Scott Satterfield at Louisville has a very tough task. When I was looking at the list of the new coaches, I thought found myself thinking, who among this new group of five coaches is going to be the next hot coach? Because somewhere among the Jake Spavitals and the Walt Bells and the Will Healy at Charlotte, there's a guy who in a couple of years we're going to be talking about as like the hot coach. So I threw those names out there, but that might not be the ones you're looking at, Bruce. Who do you think could emerge in in the next year or so among the the new group of five head coaches as the hot coach that we're going to be talking about the way we were once talking about Tom Herman or Scott Frost? Before I start, or maybe as I, my opener is, do we get to include Dana Holgerson as the hot group of five coach now? <laughs> no. Dana has eliminated himself from that. Um, he found a very nice landing spot at Houston. Uh, will he get paid a lot of money, just as almost as much as he will in the Power Five? And uh, no, Dana can't reset so he, his clock in that fashion. Okay. Um, so I agree. I, I, I think Will Healy, I've heard great things about him. I think he's a good fit at Charlotte. I think Jake Spavital will do really well at Texas State. Um, you know, I both know his his uh, right-hand guy now is going to be Bob Stitt to run the offense. I think he will recruit that area really well. Uh, I think he's he's going to be somebody I think will rise up fast. The other two names that come to mind are Eli Drinkwitz, who has to follow uh, a really successful guy in Scott Satterfield, but they've been successful there. And I've heard good things from guys who work with Drinkwitz, who came from NC State as a guy who's learned under Gus Malzahn. Um, and then one other name that I think a lot of people don't know much about is Tom Arth, 
who is an Ohio guy, was a former really good quarterback. Uh, he's he's at, now he's the new head coach yeah. at Akron. Mm-hmm. And that's one that I, I think keep an eye on. I mean, look, he he's at a place where they had a long, six, you know, solid run. But it's, you know, when you think of the Mac right now, I think you think a lot about Toledo and, and what's going on. And that's, you know, with, with Jason Campbell after following Matt, uh, Matt Campbell. But I think uh, I think that's one I, I, could, I could see him doing pretty well there. I'm interested to see how Walt Bell does at UMass you know that is a tough job though that is a super tough job super duper tough job I have heard some good things about Walt Bell and but he's also been in some situations that haven't worked out too well and if you look at just the pure numbers standpoint on his offenses they've been eh, like he was he was part of a, a, a Florida State offense last year that was really bad now how much is that on him I don't know you know he was with DJ Durkin at Maryland at the beginning of that tenure there. They did some good things there, and then he moved on. So, I, you know, again, I, I've heard very good things about him, about how he's a smart guy, he's an interesting guy. He's had some success as far as offensive coordinators and offenses he's been related to have done well. But, again, that's a super hard job. So if you get to bowl eligibility at UMass, man, you could be off to you know something much bigger just because it's such a tough job. So Walt Bell's the guy who sort of jumps out to me as maybe possibly a guy to keep an eye out on. But again, that is such a difficult job. So there's not a ton of players to get out of there. That's the I think that's the challenge. And um, but we'll see. You know, look, the best player they've had there in a while was a, was came from Ohio, Andy Isabella, and just kind of. I mean, credit to Mark Whipple for his connections to get him. But like I said, I, I feel like, you know, you have BC and Rutgers. That's like, those are tough jobs in the Northeast, Syracuse. Mm-hmm. And then to me, I feel like UMass, it's just like, it's not like it's basketball where you get Marcus Camby and, and a couple of pretty good guards and all of a sudden you can make a run at it. You need, you need a lot of players. And I think it's going to be a, it's going to be an uphill climb for Walt Bell, but like like you, I've heard a lot of good things about him, and and uh, I think you know you need a guy with a lot of energy, and he has a lot of energy. Yeah, exactly, and that's one of the reasons why he was hired there. Exactly, the big thing was energy, guys who can actually promote the program to a certain degree. Let's talk some quarterbacks. Last year, Dwayne Haskins was a first year starter, lit up the world through fifty touchdown passes. Uh, Tua Vailoa, who we knew was going to be pretty good because we had gotten a nice taste of him the year before, lit up the world, was a Heisman runner-up, was every bit as good as advertised, if not better. Kyler Murray's was a first-year starter at Oklahoma, who we had seen bits and pieces of a few years back at Texas A&M. But he played great and ended up winning the Heisman Trophy. The point being that you could be a first-year starter for a team and still be a really prominent, impactful player. That's sort of the way quarterback is now and that's the way college football is now we see guys who immediately step into these roles Trevor Lawrence who as a freshman was maybe one of the best quarterbacks in the country by the end of the season is now viewed as maybe the best player in the country heading into this season so quarterbacks can make a big step very quickly in college football now those guys Haskins and Murray Tua who we knew even Trevor we kind of saw those coming to a certain degree because in one way or another, those were all hyped up prospects. I don't quite see as many of, or as obvious selection as those guys out there, but are there any first-year starting quarterbacks that are on your radar who you think can make a big impact, maybe even be a, a, a Heisman contender, even if it's only a fringe Heisman contender this year? 
Yeah, I, I got two. One is cheating. One is not. The one that's not is Justin Fields, who is the guy who a lot of people in that Elite 11 world thought was even more talented than Trevor Lawrence. So the same year, went to Georgia, played a little, but couldn't push past Jake Fromm. And now he's at Ohio State where there's a lot of talent around him. And the thing he does, he, he does a lot better than Dwayne Haskins. You'll see that zone read game come back because he's a dynamic runner. He's a big kid too. It's not like he's like, you know, JT Barrett, six feet, two twenty. I mean, he's a, he's a bigger athlete who can also throw and he's got, he's got talent around him. I, I still think even though urban Meyer's gone, that that team is a playoff contender. The other guy, and this is the one's a little cheating because he was a starter, is Jalen Hurts, who goes into oh, the who goes now. into Oklahoma. <laughs> What's that? I was going to tell you, I was going to take Hurts off the table for you, but okay, you brought up Jalen. That's fine. Yeah, well, here's why. Here's what's interesting to me. So he's obviously the last two guys who tra- quarterbacks who transferred in there won Heisman trophies. Now the adva- the the advantage they had that he doesn't is those guys sat in Baker's case, he sat one year in to learn his players and get familiarized with the system in Jalen's case, you know, and Kyler Murray sat a couple of years. So he learned Jalen Hurts is learning the footwork and everything on the fly. He doesn't throw it as well. He doesn't throw this tight a ball as Kyler Murray. He doesn't throw it as well as, as Baker, but they have a lot of really good players around him too. And I think this, I don't want to say this is going to test Lincoln Riley because he's already proven, you know, quarterback, offensive guru and, and, and everything. But, um, they have to replace their whole offensive line or four of the five starters. So, you know, it helps that we know one thing we know about Jalen Hurts is he can run. I mean, we saw him do that in the SEC where he was the conference player of the year as a freshman. I think some people forget that two years ago. So uh, I'm interested to see. And then the one guy, and this guy won't be a Heisman guy, but one of the quarterback transfers that I'm most intrigued by is Hunter Johnson at Northwestern. He was the guy who, one of the guys who transferred out of Clemson. Obviously, Kelly Bryant was the other, but former five-star recruit, and you know he'll, he'll go to a team that just won the, the the Big Ten West. They're not flashy or anything like that. But what I'm most interested in, and you can throw Jacob Eason in here too, from the five-star guy who left Georgia for Washington. But I'm I'm more convinced that that Hunter Johnson will be the guy, at least at his school is. It's hard. It's almost impossible to find a five-star quarterback who transferred and really shined at the next place. I mean, you can't really name me one. It's it's a weird quirk, but it's the truth. Um, you know, Jeff Driscoll transferred down to Louisiana Tech and had a nice year, but you just don't you just don't see anybody who really like lived up to being a five-star guy when they moved transferred to any place else. Yeah, look at Blake Barnett who played okay last year. For South Florida, that was a guy who started his career yeah. at Alabama, and big things were expected, and he landed at South Florida. After going to Arizona State, after, right? He after, go, job, after going so. to Arizona State, where he couldn't beat out Manny Wilkins, and now you know he's got one more year left at USF, and the thing that makes that interesting is the simple fact that he wasn't good enough to simply have one big year at USF and then bounce to the pros, because that's what you think of will be the path with these five stars or high four stars or blue chips, whatever you want to call them. The thing that makes Hunter Johnson interesting is that he never really had a chance. We've never seen anything of Hunter Johnson. I don't think he played even in a little mop-up at all at Clemson because he was a freshman redshirting 
his first year when Kelly Bryant was still was the was the main starter. So he was a freshman that year. And like I said, I don't even think he played mop up. So the interesting thing about Hunter Johnson is we have very, very little information on him. And he had very, very little chance to ever win a job. He stepped in there when Kelly Bryant was the guy. And then he immediately went to his second year where it was Trevor Lawrence coming in and Kelly Bryant established. So Hunter Johnson could be really, really good, but he's just never gotten his his opportunity to show what he can do. That's why I'm most interested in Hunter Johnson. It's why I would give a certain amount of, I would have a certain amount of confidence that it could work out, even though in most cases with these five stars who move on, it doesn't. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a fascinating quirk of it. Um, I've heard good things about him. Look, he, I think he visited Duke and David Cutcliffe. From everything I've heard from people close to him, almost never wants to consider quarterback transfers because he's like feels it's almost like a, a disloyalty thing to bring in somebody else after you've worked with some of these other guys who you know bought into your system and all the leadership. You know it goes, but but Hunter Johnson's very talented. He's a good athlete and. He's about as big a recruit. I mean, I remember, I don't know what it is, maybe it was like seven or eight years ago, USC had a receiver, Kyle Prather, who was a uh, five-star kid. I want to say he was from Chicago, and he transferred in there, but he didn't really do much. So you just don't see a lot. of Northwestern doesn't get a lot of these kids. So let's see what he can do in the Big Ten West. One guy who's interesting to me, and I don't know how much info you've got on him, but you've got info on every quarterback because you are sort of plugged into that world, is uh, Gage Gabrud from now from Washington Eastern State. Eastern Washington kid, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. He transferred from Eastern Washington, sort of did the Vernon Adams thing, transferred out of Eastern Washington, Eastern Washington and now he will be – Mike Leach's new pupil at Washington State sort of stepping in for Gardner Minshew, assuming he wins the job. Now, I've seen a little bit of this kid play because he's from Washington, is a a prominent program, and he is a lot bigger than Vernon Adams. Like, he has, like, almost pro-ish size and is an interesting prospect. I mean, listen, very few quarterbacks fail under Mike Leach. There's no doubt that he'll be productive. I guess the question is just how productive. Well, to me, the question is, can he win the job? Because you're right. I, I think he, if I'm not mistaken, he was Eastern beat, beat Leach one year to kick off the season. I think he was the quarterback who did it. I think so. Uh, and he gained, a, you know, they had trouble with him in the run game and everything. Uh, but uh, I know that he has two other quarterbacks. They actually have three. Right? Trey Tinsley and Anthony Gordon were guys that we did the Apple Cup last year. And I just remember talking to guys on the staff and they talked about, how good those two kids were in terms of helping Gardner Minshew get settled. And there was like no, like no cattiness in the QB room. They loved those kids and they've spent a lot of time in the system. There was another kid who was a big quarterback recruit for Leach. Cause most of his guys usually are not like highly touted guys. And he had Cam Cooper, who was a kid who uh, I think was a four-star kid who came in early and he's also in the mix. So you got, I think four guys in there that I'm interested to see what direction it goes. I think they're going to – Gardner was about as good as Leach has had. I mean, you know, again, talking to him a little bit around our our game, the one thing he said is Gardner Minshew is probably the best leader he's ever had of a quarterback. Mm-hmm. And everybody talked about how decisive he was. So, uh, you know, the bar is sky high. But you're right. I, I'm That kid was talented. He definitely um, – you know, just you, you know, we see kids come out of the big sky, and they can 
they can really uh, light it up. And I think he's one of them who's, you know, if he can't win the job, that's saying Leach has some good good guys in front of him. Well, Bruce Feldman pressed into a last-minute start here. for uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the scheduled starter went down. Bruce got a call from the bullpen or called to the bullpen and stepped in quite nicely for us today here on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Very much appreciate you doing this on short notice. I know you're always, you always bring the thunder here and are always great. So if I knew I had to scramble to get somebody, I wanted to make sure I got somebody good. I appreciate that. I'm, I'm glad to. I'm interested to find out who was the plan A to my plan B. <laughs> Bruce Feldman from The Athletic and from Fox Sports, thanks so much for being on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast on short notice this week. Thank you. And now, three and out. First down. We're recording on Tuesday, but by the end of the week, there will be a vote by the NCAA Division I Council on a piece of legislation that could change the graduate transfer market in both football and basketball. If the amendment passes, schools will be required to commit two years of a scholarship to a grad transfer, regardless of how much eligibility that player has left. And the exception would be if the player finishes that grad degree before his second year. Since grad transfers usually have one year left, that means coaches will have to be more selective and careful about how many and which ones they bring in. I'm not 100% sure this thing will pass. My guess is it will, but my sense is among Power 5 conferences, there is division. But the Power 5 conferences don't have weighted influence in this vote. The Division I Council has representatives from all 32 Division I conferences, plus student-athletes. I think at the lower levels of Division I, not just Group of Five football, but FCS and mid-major basketball schools, there is a growing feeling that their teams are being used as a farm system for the Power Five. This might not be a solution to that problem, but I think folks in those positions feel like something has to be done, so they might as well try this. Second down, if you're an Ohio State fan, you've already been hearing the buzz about freshman wide receiver Garrett Wilson even before the spring game. For the rest of you Big Ten fans out there, you'll be hearing a lot more about Wilson this season. The Buckeyes have got to reload at wide receiver, and Wilson, a very talented freshman, will have plenty of opportunities. Third down, another interesting freshman coming out of spring practice plays for Texas A&M. Tight end Baylor Cup will step in for Jay Sternberg, who was one of the most productive pass catchers in the country in his one and only season at College Station. Sternberg was a junior college transfer. When Jimbo Fisher came into Texas A&M, there were no tight ends in the roster, and Jimbo likes to use the tight end, so he had to scramble to bring Sternberger in. He had a great season. As much as Fisher likes to implement that tight end in the offense, I could see Cup, the very talented freshman, having a big year. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. Yes, Warren Levinson is still the producer of this show. He has retired from AP on a permanent basis, but he is still helping out with the podcast, and I am very, very happy about that. You can find this podcast on Podcast One and Apple Podcasts and Google Play and anywhere you, you download your podcast. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.